Welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable. We're so glad you're with us today as we sit around the roundtable together to discuss uh, issues and all of our issues together that we have um, with each other um, and other stuff. Pastors of the Roundtable. Are we allowed to talk about the problems we have with each other? Yeah, I think that. Oh, okay. that, Yeah, that's this early festivus. <laughs> Pastors of the Roundtable is the discipleship podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. It's brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. Together, we encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. Um, around the table with me uh, today, I've got Tim Michelangeli, Scott Slater, Dave Arnold, our new music and missions pastor here at the church, and my name is Spencer Snow. Um, I'm the discipleship pastor here at MMBC. Um, guys, before we go into too deep on our next um, topic, um, I think it's important that we talk about this upcoming Sunday and... Um, your picks for the Super Bowl. Yeah. Your pick, score, Super Bowl MVP. Okay? We'll we'll do that. Go around. Scott, we'll start with you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> he was researching just now. Yeah. <laughs> Bengals, 3-0. to 3-0? to 0 Whoa! That's a tight game. That'll be the worst Super Bowl ever. <laughs> they win on a last-minute field goal. <laughs> First quarter field goal, no more yeah. points the rest Bengals, of the game. Bengals, 3 0 That means the kicker's the Super Bowl MVP. Yeah, he has. <laughs> and I know. And, okay, fine, because that's good. Because What's his name? I know literally <laughs> nobody. I don't know anybody playing. The only, person, anybody? The, the only person I know is apparently some guy that used to play for the Detroit Lions. You don't know one person's name in the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> Not one. Are you serious? I, Who's people, the quarterback for the Bengals? I don't know. People literally don't believe me. I don't care. You know how we talk about having problems with each other? <laughs> this is, is it's this coming up. Is it's, this one? Yeah, Go yeah, ahead, I, Tim. Go ahead. I yeah, really no. don't care. <laughs> See, he, Scott has a problem with you, I think. Yeah, and, I know. And now you're feeling vulnerable. I am. I don't know. I have no problems. <laughs> and... Um, I am. Okay. This is frustrating. I can go to a Super Bowl party and have a good time. So you're saying 3-0, to zero, Bengals... The Bengals kicker is the MVP. Yeah, whatever his name is. <laughs> okay. What? If, if, I'm going to win. If Scott's true, <laughs> if that happens. We were just talking about sports betting before I this. Quit. I need to go put this down. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, the cool thing, if I bet Scott would throw a good party, though. He probably would, yeah. I would see Scott having, like, the, the nacho chip hat. Yeah, like that's the sombrero, me. like that's despicable me. me when oh, he breaks oh. the chip with the salsa. <laughs> that would be awesome. My party would be all about the food. Yeah, yeah. most I, of them are. I, I was going to say, I feel like most of them kind they of are. are. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. And in mind, we would have Skyline chili <clears throat> as as a uh, as a condiment. I've put it on anything. Right, anything. Yeah. Well, you could do pizza. Uh, Skyline burritos, tater tots, sounds, um, tater tots. That sounds delicious. Hot, dog, hot, hot dogs, dogs, obviously. Hot dogs. I've done the tater tots. It's great. Uh huh. Like loaded tater tots. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Dave. You. So I'm kind of like Scott. I don't really. Woo! I'm not a big Super Bowl person. Um, I do. I do. I'm going for the Bengals. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be a close game. I'm going to just say 14-7. Fourteen to seven. Yeah. All right. Just, so you're. It's a. That's a much higher scoring game than yeah. the one Scott oh, yeah. was predicting. Do you know anybody in the game? Stafford. I mean. Yeah, that's the quarterback for the Rams. For the Rams. But if yeah. he loses, I, I knew he who that was. He I can't be the MVP. MVP. No, I know. So you probably have to. <laughs> Joe. Uh, yeah. Burrow. Burrow. Yeah. yeah for, it's yeah. Burrow. So okay. I'm going to go for him for the MVP then. Yeah. I'm going for the Bengals. So I. Yeah. I don't like the Rams. Yeah. I just. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I agree. But I'm not a huge football. You're a hockey guy, right? I'm a hockey guy, yeah. yeah. I mean, I watch it. It's fun. But, um, and I mean, I kind of gave up on the Lions a while ago. <laughs> you know, I think that's, but, you know. Can't give up on them. I mean, well, I'm like, not going to say that. I don't watch them every week. But. Yeah. I can tell you this. All the people that's given up on them, that I, my short experience in Michigan, if they ever that's right. made it to yeah. the championship game, They're even right of the NFC, all these people are going to the, the town will be a little crazy. It would yeah. be nuts. It will oh, go crazy. Yeah. Well, I grew up in in DC. I grew up as a Redskins fan. I know you can't say Redskins. They the changed Washington, their names. You know that? Washington. Did they really? Yeah. It's now the Commanders. When did they make that? Uh, they just announced it uh, over the snow stuff. So uh, oh, I did been, not know that. I neither. It might have been. Uh, they announced it for some reason on the Today Show. 
Oh. Well, that's where but I... But Joe Theismann be. already had let it slip out. Yeah. He messed up. Commanders. Like, days before. Yeah. But yeah, they're the Commanders. The commanders. Washington okay. Commanders. And so I, I grew up really close to where they practiced. Redskin, Redskin Park, they call it. And I, you know, in the 80s, like, 84 or 5, I was like, what, 8 or 9 or 7 or whatever. And I got all those guys. I got Theismann's autograph. Really? I got John Riggins. Oh, sweet. Um, you you were in Art Monk's house. I went to visit Art Monk. He lived <laughs> down the street in our subdivision. My sister and I went and knocked on his door. He was a rookie. He let us in. Him and his wife were so cool. They're like, hey, come on in. You knocked on his door because of he was a football player? Yeah. because You I were knew- just some kids like, I'm just going to go knock on yeah, his door. Yeah, I heard that he lived in our subdivision. <laughs> so we That's found, awesome. we thought this might be his house. I think somebody would give us a little clue. Or whatever. Yeah. So I knocked on his door. He let us in. He had just started, and that was his like, rookie year. Yeah. Wow. Really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Nice. So, That's awesome. So, I'm, yeah. I have no stories like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't either. <laughs> Tim, your pick. Yeah, I mean. So, we got two Bengals. Yeah, I know. Here. I'm pulling for the Rams because I'm. <clears throat> Stafford was here as a Lion for mm-hmm. a long time. Yeah. I don't knock him at all for leaving. I mean, I would want to leave. For sure, the Lions. Uh, Did he have a choice? Yeah, I mean, he said, I, I want to be out of here. And so they had to trade him to get something. And they did Or get, he, they would have just lost They him. did get some stuff back. We did get some stuff back. My one thing being jerk off, which we could give back. Well, but there's but no point some, to him. But anyways, yeah, yeah, go ahead, I'm going to probably say I want the Rams to win, so I'd rather say I think the Rams are going to win. Now, it is in their home stadium. They have a home game, essentially, even though there'll be no the fans multi-billion there. multi-billion dollar, dollar so There are no fans? The ticket prices are over five grand a piece for the cheapest ticket, so fans don't get to go. It's all corporate oh. in this stadium. So there's Makes not, sense. yeah, there's there's no fans really in there, mm-hmm. which they don't have many fans anyways. Most of their games, more <laughs> that of the was, opponents are there, honestly. Yeah, that was really funny, actually. The yeah. Um, so I'm going to say the Rams just come on pull for them. I think the score that we have been given so far is way too low, both of those scores. <laughs> it should be, like, in the 30s, <laughs> this game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, I don't know, let's go with 38 to 34 Rams. Okay. And uh, Stafford getting the nod at MVP. Okay. Even though I could definitely see Cooper Cup. If he gets two touchdowns, 170 yards, which yeah. is not, like, yeah. out of the picture for him, right. I could see him getting the MVP. It's not, I don't want Odell Beckham to get the MVP. Okay. Well, I mean. He's too annoying. <laughs> those are all possibilities, but the <clears throat> problem is, is the Bengals are going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I know you're going to go for the Bengals, and but I can't go for an Ohio team, first of all. You know what's really funny? Can That's I say ridiculous. I was listening they're, to the Cleveland. Ohio. I was listening right. to the Cleveland Sports Station up here, right? You can get it. And it was really funny. Are they rooting for the Bengals? Well, no. This was what's funny. They were talking about how hard it is or something like that to be a Browns fan because they were playing the audio of, the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> and they hate <laughs> and, the Bengals. And oh, the yeah. Bengals are going oh, yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was just really funny. Um, but, yeah. No, I'm going for Bengals. Joe Burrow, MVP. I'm going to say 31-27. Hmm. Realistic. I, I thought, okay, so the Bengals have a few things going for them. They got a quarterback with the it factor. They do. They got a coach. Is that a show like the X Factor? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, they, uh, yeah, it's, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, I haven't seen that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm the star. <laughs> and um, uh, they've got their head coach as a former Nebraska Cornhusker quarterback, which I like. And third of all, the the NFL stole my hometown team. And so that's I, what this really is. I don't is you rec- hate the Rams because they used to be St. Louis. I don't recognize yeah. the, this team. You I do don't, not recognize the Bengals this. basically have a bye this week. That's what you're saying. The I don't even up. recognize this team. I they are de facto Super Bowl champs. The Bengals. Yes. Yes. I am going for them. What a whiny I think Midwesterner St. Louis guy. Hey, we won more Super Bowls than in our few years. We had a team than Detroit's ever won. Yeah, but we have a team still. Yeah. You don't. Get over it. Actually, Jeff Fisher, your old coach, is now the Michigan Panthers coach. The USFL. We'll talk about that in April. We'll have more coming on about that. Maybe we should get Jeff Fisher on the podcast. That'd be awesome. Even though I would guess most people listening to us would not know who he is. Yeah. I remember because he coached against the Rams in the Super Bowl that Mm. the Rams won against the Titans. Yeah. So, for all of you football fans out there. Um, so anyway, that's our Super Bowl picks. I'm excited um, Me too. For, the, for the Bengals. And, this uh, Sunday night, Cameron Bitzer's preaching. And yeah. if he's listening to this, he should uh, 
Cut it off quick. <laughs> what time does the game start? 6.30. 6.30. That's plenty of time. Yeah. Our service starts at 6. Yeah, that's not plenty of time. The game will last for like four Scott. hours. I was going to do five songs. Is that okay? Five no. Songs. Yeah. No. Well, just if, for, if, just if, do if it. Scott is right, then we won't miss anything because it'll be three to zero. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, we, <laughs> we won't miss anything. The can happen at the beginning of the game. <laughs> that's okay. And then it'll just be really boring. <laughs> It'll be that anyways. No, it won't. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So, with that, um, yeah, uh, we're going to continue on our talk about, we've got. Actually, we have the Seventh-day Adventists, which if we followed some of their things, we would get to see the Super Bowl on Sunday. Oh, it'd be on Saturday, but you would have We'd to be worshiping college on football. Saturday. But there's none of that right now. There's yeah. nothing on Saturday right now. Yeah, except the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like the Olympics. The Winter really? Olympics yeah. are pretty boring. Yeah, I don't like either of them. Oh, I love the Summer I Olympics. I like watching the Winter Olympics. Yeah, I'm trying I'm hard to be into the Winter Olympics, but I Hockey. just... Oh, yeah. I cannot get Next excited week. about figure skating. I cannot get excited about the moguls. Any sport... Curling. Curling is awesome. Any sport <laughs> that is judged, I don't like. I'm finding. I just don't mm. like it. I think it's rigged. I I don't like it. Mm. But like curling, there's a there's no judging. It's you scored this many points, you right. win. Right. Or some of the skiing events, you did it the fastest, you win. Mm-hmm. I like those, but yeah. the the judge stuff, I just can't. I can't do. I, it, maybe it'd be a time to watch Cool Runnings. We again. watched it. We did watch it. Yeah. This past yeah. Week. Jamaica has yeah. a bobsled. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So we're talking about the Seventh Day Adventist. Um, and one of the things that before we go in here, uh, this was, so we got two denominations to talk with uh, to to wrap up this series, walking through Christian denominations. This so we got Seventh Day Adventists, and then the next week we'll talk about Pentecostalism and Charismatics, uh, Charismaticism. But this week Seventh Day Adventism is peculiar because it's one of those groups that is on the edge. Um, so some people. Um, will view this group as um, Christian while being while having errant or wrong views still within the Christian fold. Other groups will other people will say no, um, they are outside of the Christian faith. So they're kind of on the nice edge in a sense, and you could go either way um, with the, uh, this group. And so we're going to talk a little bit about their background, and I think honestly. One of the things that's interesting about the, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists is there's a lot of exciting background and history going on, if nothing else. Um, so let's let's kind of uh, do a little bit of, uh, of of history. Scott, are you excited? I am. You excited about Very the history? Very excited. Okay. Um, <laughs> Seventh-day Adventism begins in the United States in the 1800s, and from around 1790 to 1840, there's this long period uh, that we can kind of throw in as the a th- period called the Second Great Awakening. And it's, um, well, there's a quote from uh, an online resource. The Second Great Awakening, what was it, was a diverse bundle of revivals affecting a broad swath of American religious, political, and public life. So there were these revivals, these religious awakenings um, of various sorts and of different stripes going on in America. And remember, the United States is expanding to the West. And so you've got these revivals going on. You've got a, a revivalist like uh, Charles Finney, um, who's going around, um, who's uh, calling people forward. So he starts this thing called the Anxious Bench, where he calls people forward. If you're struggling with sin or whatever, you come up to the Anxious Bench and you are there, and you get counsel, I guess. You get help, um, and um, but you're you're up there. And these these were called new measures. He was bringing in new techniques, and eventually Charles Finney thought that he could produce revival with the appropriate techniques. Um, and uh, this is this is going on in the frontier. You've got uh, a group called the Stone Campbell Movement, which is saying that we're trying to go back to the early church. We're trying to restore the gospel, the early church um, ideas. And also, you got the group like the Mormons with Joseph Smith, who are saying, "Well, we are really restoring it, the the gospel, because your Bibles are all have errors in them. But we've uh, Joseph Smith found these gold plates." in New York and has translated them and they are um well as they today they call them another testament of Jesus Christ. So 
you have um, all of these different religious movements and events going on. It's kind of a swirling, uh, just a whole bunch of stuff going on um, in the air. And it's in that context that eventually in, that we come with it to a guy named William Miller. William Miller, um, who was born in 1782, died in 1849. Now, again, I'm reading from this uh, online resource And it says here, William Miller was a Baptist lay preacher who, after years of lengthy biblical study, predicted that the second coming of Jesus Christ would occur in 1843. His first predictions were printed in Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ in 1836. So he goes around, he comes to this conclusion after reading the Bible that he can pinpoint the, the, the time period that Jesus is going to come back. And it's rooted in Daniel 8, verse 14. Could someone read that verse? Tim, do you have your Bible open? Yeah. Could you read that verse? Yeah. It says, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay. So pulling kind of from this verse, the, the question is, what does it mean for the sanctuary to be restored after 2,300 Days and evenings, right? He comes to the conclusion, and that text is important there, that this is referring to Jesus. As, you know, Jesus is going to come back, and we can calculate all of these things. So he has the idea eventually at first that Jesus could come back between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st of 1844. So a whole year he gives himself. Um, eventually, that date is wrong. He rereads and comes to a, there's another date, October 22nd of 1844. And eventually that date comes and passes. So first of all, let me ask you guys, is it possible? Is this a good idea for us to try to predict the second coming of Jesus? And is it possible? Scott? Oh, I'm not, you Scott. just got shut down. I'm not, Scott. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Right. I would say no and no. Okay. Why is it not a good idea? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a good idea because I don't think it's possible. Right. And so my answer to the second question comes into why it's not a good idea. But it's not possible because Christ said himself he didn't know. Right. So, I mean, if if he doesn't know, why do I think I can know? Right. Why do I think I should know? The other side is I just think that's based on especially the historical context of what was going on, during the Second Great Awakening and the new measures and stuff, it seems like just a really manipulative tactic to get people afraid of the end to produce a result of them making a decision to become a Christian. That's my yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Tim? I would say we do have to balance, though, with that answer. Hold on. My, these are driving me crazy. The fact that Jesus does say, to know the signs of the time, right? Jesus does talk about that. He says there will be wars and rumors of war, right? There, so there is an aspect to when we have to, to the fact that we have to be looking forward to Christ's return, right? And to not be, there's parables that make it sound like don't be ignorant of the fact. Don't be caught off guard that Christ is returning. I think we would argue, though, that some people take that too far to where they're trying to know the exact date. Yeah, that's, time. A, that's yeah. a good point yeah. that you're making because he does say that. You're right. I just wanted to balance that because, I, I mean, I agree with, with what Scott said. I, I look at this, like what you just read, and knowing this, and like, what a fool. I don't know anything about the guy. could be probably way smarter right. than me. I mean, I'm not doubting that at all. But how dumb. And then how dumb for people who are still following it, if you still agree with it. Well, that time I, came by. And I think also it's fair to say this guy seemed, I mean, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. He was probably very sincere. Sure. Um, just because you're sincere mm-hmm. doesn't make that okay. Mm-hmm. But um, also there's been guys um, today, right? I think the most recent one that I think about is Harold Camping. Do you guys remember Harold Camping? Uh, that name sounds familiar, yeah. Few, well, what was that, maybe a decade ago or so, or maybe more? He was predicting that the, the world was going to wrap up. Um, so every so often you you hear people come and, and make predictions um, about the end times, and uh, they've come up with the date. Um, and like we've we talked about, Jesus says you, that no man knows the date, but he does tell us to be ready. 
Mm-hmm. He does clearly say that, um, but that doesn't mean that you know um, yeah. uh, when he's going to come. He just says, be ready, because mm-hmm. uh, I could come anytime, um, anytime at all. I'd like to read, I mean, how he came to that. <clears throat> it's probably a lot of reading, though, so I probably won't do that, But <laughs> if I'm being honest. But 2,300 days and evenings is six years, a little over six years. So, Well, I think he would probably interpret that as years, 2,300 years. Okay, so does he do that in creation? Back with up, the days back and evenings. Up does he do that with creation? Uh, with no, I'm assuming evenings? it's it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it would be from the first temple's destruction to 1844 or how he would do that, that whole calculation. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, he did arrive. I'm just saying if he's interpreting days and evenings to mean years there, right. I don't know how he couldn't do that for creation. I I do think there's people that do that. I do think one of the things that's important too is as a I'm guessing he's in it though. As helping us read the Bible <laughs> is it's not a good idea to pull a big doctrine like this, a big statement from such a from such an obscure passage like yeah. this. Yeah. Cuz if you read the rest right. of that passage, right. It's like okay. Right. So <laughs> some portions of God's word are much clearer than other portions and we always trust in the plain scriptures. And what interpret the, the less clear by the clearer passages of Scripture. I think it's Alistair. He always says, right. let the plain things be the main things. Right. And the main things are the plain things. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but this is what can happen if we let some things that are less plain and clear in Scripture uh, govern our overall thinking um, and such. So this whole thing happens. And you could imagine um, what would happen if you were expecting, and by the way, this was a major disappointment. It was called the Great Disappointment, mm-hmm. and it was a major deal um, because there was it was a major, I think I've even read, there was a major media blitz, so to speak, for the time to really, because if you can imagine, if you know Jesus is coming back in this year, you're going to do a ton of evangelism or whatever to try to spread the gospel, spread that message to everywhere you can. Um but there's a great disappointment, and there's groups that respond differently to this great disappointment. Um, to and how do you respond whenever what you thought was going to happen um, doesn't happen? Um, so first of all, some people came to the conclusion that Daniel eight fourteen was talking about Christ's second coming, but the predicted time was wrong. So some people thought got the wrong time, but the right event. Some people thought that both the event and the time predicted were correct as being October 22nd, but rather that Christ had returned in some spiritual way, um, not a physical way. Uh, The third group is where the Seventh-day Adventists come from. They thought the predicted time, October 22nd, was correct. Something had happened, and Daniel 8.14 had been fulfilled, but Daniel 8.14 was not talking about the second coming of Christ. And I'm reading here, I believe this is from a Seventh-day Adventist uh, theologian, George Knight, or a historian or somebody like that. Um, He writes this, Something had taken place on October 22nd, 1844. This is him writing. But it was not the second coming of Christ. Rather, after a thorough study of Scripture, using Miller's concordance approach, they concluded that the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 was God's heavenly temple rather than the earth. Thus, Christ has, had entered a new phase of ministry on October 22, 1844. This interpretation formed the initial insight that led to Seventh-day Adventism. So that eventually uh, kind of is the, the initial, um, I, I don't want to use the word insight, but that was the interpretation that's kind of the foundation stone for which kind of leads to Seventh-day Adventism breaking apart and becoming its breaking away and becoming its its own thing. So they center together around a unique eschatology that is a unique way of understanding the latter days. They also embrace the seventh day Sabbath. So they don't they believe that you should worship on Saturday, not Sunday. And also they have a unique way that they still think that um, there are prophets or people that God still speaks through, and especially they believe in the voice of uh, Ellen G. White. Ellen G. White, who um, you can, she has a website. I mean, she's she's got long gone, but you can go online and, and check it out online and read her stuff. Um, so they still kind of view her um, uh, as, a, as a prophetic voice of sorts. 
Um, so uh, just before we continue to, as we look at some of their basic um, beliefs and such, it's very important to remember that, like, so you're, you're hearing this probably and you're thinking, how in the world can these people, I mean, <laughs> it's obviously a cult. Um, and there have been people who make that argument, and it's a very strong argument to make because there's many things that we would disagree with Seventh-day Adventists on, um, as we'll go through mm-hmm. in some of them. But then there are others which maybe seem to be more evangelical, and some some people have actually argued that Seventh-day Adventists have actually, rather than like Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, all those groups, right? They, they kind of definitely veered away from historic Christianity, Seventh-day Adventism has, to some degree, it's not, it doesn't perfectly match everything that historic Christianity teaches, but they've come closer and moved towards historic Christianity uh, rather than away from it. So just depending on who you're talking to, some people will say this is a cult or a non-Christian group. Other people will say, no, they, they, they do fit within the Christian fold, although they are very much in error on certain doctrines. So I would say probably in some ways it's, you're probably going to have to talk to individual seventh day Adventists and listen to them, try to understand what they're saying and what they mean by what they say and what they believe. And you can kind of gauge where somebody's at, um, um, individually. So, um, yeah. Any thoughts before we go into their belief system real quick or anything? Okay. So one of the things that really shook me, was whenever I read what the president, I believe this is the president of the uh, Seventh-day Adventist um, uh, church, says about salvation. And um, and this kind of sets you back, especially if we're committed Protestants. Um, one of the things he says here is this. He says, um <clears throat> I'm looking here at this quote. I believe, yeah, I'm stealing this from the Adventist News website um, uh, or Adventist News. This is from their thing. So he says this, My friends, Christ is the center of every Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. Doctrines are not some legalistic remnant of days gone by. Doctrines are Christ's life and teachings and practical understanding. Jesus is the center of all that we believe and all that we do in his name. He is the one who accomplishes every good thing in any of us. We are saved by grace and faith in the one who is our all in all. And he says this, During this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, reflecting what took place 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany, with Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the castle church doors, let us continue to champion all the fundamentals of Protestantism. Sola Scriptura, only the Bible. Sola Fide, only by faith. Sola Gratia, only by grace. Solus Christus, Christ is our only mediator. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. When so many today are making an apology for the Protestant Reformation or saying it is over, let us raise the biblical banner high and realize that Seventh-day Adventists may be the last major widespread denomination to remain strongly standing for heaven's initiative of the Protestant Reformation. Our biblical beliefs matter, and they are all centered in Christ, our righteousness, creator, redeemer, Lord, savior, coming king, and best friend. So, anyway, you can see why whenever you initially read that, you're kind of taken aback because he's here championing doctrines that we would say are very much at the center of true Christianity. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. Um, We still have some major differences with these people, but what does that do? What I mean, whenever you initially hear those statements, what does that, does that trigger anything to you? I mean, it sounds familiar. Right. Uh, it doesn't make you step back. It makes me have more questions, I guess, for them. Like the whole Christ alone. He doesn't say Christ alone. He says Christ is our only mediator. Yeah. I'd want to know more about that. What do you mean by mediator? Does this mean something then for the atonement? Uh, do you have a difference of opinion or what I would say with the with the atonement there? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, from surface... I think we would look at it and it'd bring more comfort maybe right. than what I had had before. But knowing where we're going and other things this guy has said, it wipes some of that away. Sure. It makes, <laughs> sure. Me, it makes me feel like I would at least be able to have a conversation mm. with this guy. Right. And be on the same page about what we're talking about or have the same starting point, mm-hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it it brings some questions of, like, 
Scripture alone, well, what about this lady who had all these prophecies? How does that right. work with yeah. your understanding of Scripture alone? Sure. Um, because it's with many of the other denominations we've talked about, you know, you can say something, but we might define that differently than how you're defining that. Definitely. You know? So, yeah, but I feel Good like point. we'd at least have a point of conversation that we could start from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I think one of the things, too, is honestly, I didn't know really anything really about Seventh-day Adventism before I started studying this. So that was kind of uh, surprising, pleasantly surprising to hear some of these things coming um, from the president of their denomination. But that also then begs questions like what you guys were saying about defining what they mean by what they're saying. And also, there are still major doctrines like like the the prophetic ministry of Ellen White or, as we're going to talk about, the role of hell. Um, things like that that we're going to be like, I, I don't know, though. You, you, you know, it's just kind of, uh, kind of jarring in some ways. Um, and so we'll kind of summarize their basic um, ideas of, of what they believe about salvation. Uh, you can look on, they've got a thing called fundamental beliefs, and you can read that. That's um, what they say they believe about the basic fundamentals of the faith. So they believe mankind shares a fallen nature and its consequences with tendencies uh, to evil. They believe that Christ um, uh, died as a substitutionary death uh, for our sins. They uh, um, actually on their website, and this is another thing that was kind of surprising on their website, um, Adventist.org, they, they write this as Martin Luther so beautifully expressed. He has made his righteousness, my righteousness and my sin, his sin. So they're quoting Martin Luther again, which is for us, if you're talking about the work, person and work of Christ on the cross is a good thing. So it's kind of, I, for me at least, curious that they're, they're pulling from that and saying this is what we believe as well. Yeah, so I had a question about this one yeah. because like I read through the whole uh, quote from their fundamental belief number nine there about the atonement and what it does. I, I don't really see anything in there that I would really agree with or disagree with rather that much. But uh, Nathan Buzinitz, yeah, he said like one of the things that like he has the negative critique yeah, of Seventh-day Adventism, and he gives three reasons. And the first one is their unorthodox view of Christ's work of atonement. So what does he think is so unorthodox about their fundamental belief statement? I don't. I don't want to answer for him, but I would. I would wonder if he's talking about the temple priestly ministry that we're going to talk about about okay. what happened in 1844. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but I, that's kind of what I would guess. But I'm not. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't know for sure what he would think. Um, but uh, then he says, obviously, how do we receive those who repent of sins, believe in Christ, are justified, adopted as God's sons and uh, daughters? So. At some level, I mean, compared to other, you know, you read some, I mean, it's not like reading some really precise old confession of faith, but it's also in some ways more substantial than some evangelical statements of faith that I've seen um, where they, which are pretty bare. Now, this is one of the really things that are, that we, when we move now to their idea of Christ's ministry and the heavenly sanctuary, this is interesting um, and um, obviously, we we greatly disagree with this, but this is like kind of um, part and parcel for their existence, right? Is they have a unique understanding of Christ's priestly um, uh, ministry. So this is stealing from their fundamental belief number twenty four, uh, number twenty four in footnote twenty four, as you guys can see on the handouts that I've got. Yeah, they say this: there is a sanctuary in heaven. The true tabernacle that the Lord set up and not humans. In it, Christ ministers on our behalf, making available to believers the benefits of his atoning sacrifice offered once for all on the cross. At his ascension, he was inaugurated as our great high priest and began his intercessory ministry, which was typified by the work of the high priest in the holy place of the earthly sanctuary. In 1844, remember, we, we talked about that history in the past. In 1844, at the end of the prophetic period of 2,300 days, he entered the second and last phase of his atoning ministry, which was typified by the work of the high priest in the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary. And there's more that I could read there from the quote. But surmise it to say, one of the things, um, I'll kind of, uh, stealing this is from, uh, there's actually a guy named uh, 
a class there. It's a summary of Adventist sanctuary doctrine that I pulled a handout from their university, Andrews University. And um, it's, it's helpful to kind of summarize. So what they argue here basically is this. Atonement, according to them, again, I'm not saying this is what we believe, but atonement consists of two elements, sacrifice and priestly ministry, which we could see, okay, maybe there's two aspects that we could, we could see that. There's also sacrifice. And so they would say that Christ accomplished the atoning sacrifice once and for all at the cross. But his priestly ministry, which is the second half of the work of atonement, is in the heavenly sanctuary, which is also patterned after the earthly sanctuary that was on earth. So you have to go back and read your Old Testament and remember that in the tabernacle, there were two areas basically within the tabernacle. There was the holy place, and then through the veil, there was the holy of holies. Their argument, again, I'm not saying this is our argument, but their argument is that just as there were those two rooms where the priests would be in the holy place and then would enter to the whole, most holy place only on special occasions, similarly, they would say Jesus Christ had a ministry from AD 31 to 1844 um, in the outer place, in the holy place, and then in post-1844, he entered into the most holy place um, for his people. And so that's what they would say is happening. So... Um, I know it's kind of crazy. It's honestly totally different way of thinking about this stuff. Um, and I don't agree with it. I think there's, there's, I think this is an error, but this is how they're understanding this whole temple thing. And I could also see that's why um, Nathan Busenitz would say that their, their atoning work, their understanding of Christ's atonement is, uh, is wrong or inadequate or unorthodox. Um, it's interesting because it's almost like, like, look, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the disappointment of 1844. You almost wonder if it's a reaction to, mm-hmm. okay, this guy, Miller, predicted that Christ would come back. He didn't. And so there's, like, uh, they're trying to backpedal. Okay, Definitely. Now, now what do we do? Let's come up with this. Right. <laughs> In this almost mysterious kind of, like, mystical thing. Let's let's have this kind of idea of the sanctuary and metaphor. Metaphorically speaking, mm-hmm. well, that's, there's two ministries of Christ, you know, and this and this can be the big thing we can kind of plant our stake in and say, yes, this is it. Definitely. Like a reactive kind of idea. Yeah, 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 definitely. You've already gone so far down the interpretive trail to say this is something had to happen yeah. here, but mm-hmm. what? So y- there's, um, yeah, again, I, I, I don't want to doubt people's sincerity, yeah. but on the other hand, um, you do see... That is a reality. Any other thoughts about this this idea? This how would we how would you respond if someone came to you and said this is what they believed? How would you respond as a pastor um, to them about from where what we what, how is this different also from what we would teach in our church? I, mean, I think you'd have to go to Hebrews. Obviously, that's where Hebrews talks about this greatly about mm-hmm. Christ being our high priest and what that means. They bring up new words that aren't in Scripture. Uh, you didn't read it. And what you said, at least from this from this mm-hmm. quote, but yeah. they're talking about the work of Christ now in the Holy of Holies is an investigative judgment. Right. That's what he's doing. Right. And in his investigative judgment, he is revealing to the heavenly intelligences, whoever that is. I don't I'm not sure who that is. I don't know. Maybe but angels. I don't know. He's revealing to them who among the dead right now are asleep in Christ and who among the living are who they're not only in Christ, but they're also obeying the commandments, mm-hmm. which shows some legalism there, mm-hmm. uh, which then you have questions about what is the work sure. of the atonement? What, sure. ha, what is happening there? Sure. Um, Cause there's definitely signs of legalism. And I think we'll see that more uh, as we keep going. But my question to them would be, where are you getting this work of Christ now in scripture, which maybe they have an Daniel answer. 14. <laughs> I know, but Daniel eight fourteen doesn't say anything I, about that. So what I was, Tim, I think you're right. That I mean, what I would do is I would turn to Hebrews, just like what you were talking about, Tim. Yeah. And I actually think that what Hebrews says in Hebrews nine, starting in verse twenty three, says the exact opposite of what they're trying to teach. That there's Christ ascending into heaven. There's like two stages 
of like now he's in the holy place and then in 1844 he moved to the most holy place right, right. but i think like if you just read in hebrews starting in chapter 9 verse 23 thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things mm-hmm. to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now that maybe Mm. you could think, okay, fine, yeah, Mm. he's in the holy place, but that's not the holy of holies. Mm. But then it says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. That is a reference to the Day of Atonement, which is in the Holy of Holies. And then he says, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away Mm -hmm. sin by the sacrifice of himself. Mm -hmm. So that's talking about Christ has done that. Mm -hmm. Whatever the Day of Atonement represented by the priest entering into the Holy of Holies, Christ did that. It was a once-and-for-all sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That happened. Mm -hmm. So I think Hebrews is saying something the exact opposite of what they're talking about. Yeah, that's really helpful, Scott. Another thing that came to mind whenever you mentioned about the Hebrews then was also when Jesus sat on the cross, the veil was torn. Yeah. That that whole understanding, Mm -hmm. this is the sacrifice in the holy place. Mm -hmm. He is is it. Um, Well, and what Scott read, too, about in Hebrews— uh, there in nine verses twenty three and stuff. The writer of Hebrews, I say this very lightly, minimizes the tabernacle that was made by hands by saying, "Christ didn't enter this. He's in heaven. <laughs> He's in heaven now. You're talking about the holy place, the holy of holies. He's in heaven. That's above all of that." And he's entered this by his own blood once and for all, like you said. And so, yeah, well, it's segmenting it off. It's reminding, and I, this might be what you're trying to say, but I, just, I, I was thinking of it differently, that it almost seems like Seventh-day Adventists are trying to model heaven after the tabernacle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hebrews says it's the opposite. No. <laughs> yeah. The tabernacle was modeled after heaven. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a good point, Scott. I really like that. Yeah. And I think one of the things, it's a good reminder, too, of the tabernacle is a uh, is the image of heaven real, heavenly realities, but that doesn't mean that in all the details, like you can't press these things too far. Yeah, um, and you can't also just read these things like that and enforce that interpretation. Um, there was a basic element that God was trying to teach His people through the tabernacle, which was the necessi- necessity of sacrifice, God's holy presence, blood, mm-hmm. sacrifice, atonement. Um, but this whole idea of all these two stages and everything, you, you're really starting to press the details. Um, well, Jesus kind of wiped that away when He looked at the temple. You remember, and He said, "Yeah, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild right. it in three days." And they're like, "What? How are you going to rebuild this whole thing in three days?" And it's like. It's because he's not talking about the building that you made. He's talking about his body, mm-hmm. right? He is the holy place. He is the holy place. Right. And right. so that yeah. kind of takes... Which the fullness of God dwells. Yeah, it takes that sure. away. Sure. Like like Scott was saying, but they they seem to be holding on to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think this this is one area right here. If you were to come to, depending on which type of Seventh-day Adventist you're talking to, some of them may be more evangelical, and you may be able to have more of this dialogue like we're talking, you know, and so others of them may have a much more legalistic view sure. of this mm-hmm. ministry of Jesus. Um, and so you just, again, I think it's a good reminder to talk to people and listen to what they're saying, um, because at least from my research, not all of them are the same. You have to at least interact with them and, and dif- differentiate. So um, that's kind of just a quick overview of what their distinctive doctrine is about Christ's heavenly ministry in heaven. That's why 1844 is important to them. Um, another, a few other things that are distinctive about them. First of all, they, they believe in the seventh-day Sabbath, so we worship on uh, the Sabbath day, uh, which is the seventh day, Saturday, um, they still believe also that with an emphasis on God's law, but on also on uh, overall health, health. So, and this is really, I mean, Scott, you brought up the word Hebrews, which is ties into the idea of coffee. Exactly. Um, that was lame. 
Uh, <laughs> it's a lame Baptist joke. Isn't it? By the way, the new coffee that Dave brought in the office is really good. It's a rising star. Yes, it's a rising, all right. It's rising. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're very big into health. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, I'm reading this from yeah from the Adventist website again. Um. In addition to organized healthcare institutions, early Adventist health reform involved early support of the germ theory of disease, evidence of the benefits of a vegetarian diet, and abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, and recreational drugs. And this is actually from Ellen White on her website. She said this, tea and coffee drinking is a sin, an injurious indulgence, which like other evils injures the soul. These darling idols create an excitement, a morbid action of the nervous system, and after the immediate influence of the stimulants is gone, it lets down below par just to that degree that its stimulating properties elevated above par. That actually sounds like something Tim would say. Yeah, but you guys would just say, just keep drinking it and we'll never come down. Just Tim, keep drinking. Tim's, Tim, Tim and Ellen The stimulant will never end. Yeah. yeah. The stimulant will never end. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Oh, so anyway, that's a fascinating uh, reality as well. And I think so they, uh, I do have a, I did a yeah. question. I don't know if you came across it, but um, you had talked about healing ministries. Within Seventh-day Adventists, this isn't um, like laying on of hands healing. It seems to be more medical. Did I, did I mention healing? Well, it says in a quote above, it, the 1860s marked the beginning of the administrator's expansive health reform efforts yeah. and healing ministries. But I wonder, oh. to them, the healing ministries is, it sounds like hospitals and, and different things. Not not necessarily like a, like I said, a laying on yeah. of hands, miraculous mm-hmm. healings. Yeah, it, that, that's a fascinating point. Um, I do not know. Okay. I don't know if this ties in. But there was a whole, and, and Dave is kind of an ex, because of uh, your work with the CMA, is... Um, there was there became this whole idea and you can see it in the quote from the president of the denomination where they kind of start talking about Christ as redeemer lord savior coming king mm-hmm. but there's also this idea and that um uh, that we'll talk about with pentecostalism as well there became this talk in the 1800s that Jesus is my healer mm-hmm. my sanctifier my coming king and savior maybe there was like a fourfold way um yeah. So you're starting yeah. to see these this idea that Christ, through his atonement, I don't know if this is what they believe, but I'm saying there there was the idea that through his person and work, he also came to heal our diseases. Okay. Um, um, and obviously, I'm not saying they were taking it to the prosperity gospel extent, the health and wealth thing, but that was at least an idea oh, yeah. that mm-hmm. was starting. Um, so I don't know if they're being influenced or if there's any tie there at all, but that wouldn't surprise me mm-hmm. if, if there was, because that was starting to be in the air um, with stuff like that. It says their first, uh, ad, the first Adventist-owned and operated medical institution is the Battle Creek Sanitarium mm-hmm. in Michigan. Yeah. yeah. That's neat. It is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. it's also, and Battle Creek also is where Kellogg's is yeah. from, right? Oh, yeah. Cereal. Kellogg's cereal. Battle Creek also has the highest concentration of black squirrels. Really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I research, when I moved here, I saw my first black squirrel, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what is that? Yeah. yeah. I'd never seen one before. I'm and, like, when you research it, yeah. it's like they're, like, they're in Battle Creek. That's, yeah. like, kind of, like, where they came from. Yeah, you see them up north a lot. I think it's amazing. Wow. Amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, man. <laughs> That's better than football right there. <laughs> Just move on. Oh, on. Saw a black yeah, squirrel. Right. <laughs> oh god! Come on, Scott's going to use that as an illustration. Uh, you know, like there's these black squirrels in Battle no, Creek. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I let it die here. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Fourthly, uh, uh, you know, they they do believe they call it the conditional nature of human immor immor. I shouldn't say it should say immortality, not immorality. Mm-hmm. Um, what this means is, uh, is that they don't believe that hell is an eternal torment state of, of a conscious punishment. They believe, um, in what we might call annihilationism so that people who are unbelievers, um, people who uh, are not in Christ will eventually simply be destroyed and cease to exist they will be annihilated in that sense. There will hell is not a an eternal conscious punishment of the unrepentant. So they would they would reject that, and that is an issue that 
It's not popular today, obviously, but we would we would reject um, that that teaching from the clear teaching of Scripture. And see, that would be a struggle too, because I think that God created everything for His glory and for His purposes. But then, one of the works of salvation here would be more for me to have eternal life. I can become immortal like God, and spe- that becomes some of my motivation, maybe, mm. in my trusting in God, uh, where. I don't see it that way. I mean, I think people use that as a tool when they're sharing the gospel or where they talk about hell or whatever. God can use that for sure. But really, I think when you come to an understanding of salvation and why we trust in God is because of his goodness and for his glory and because of his love that he has shown, it's really not about me anymore. But this this way of thinking makes it about me, I think, more so. Hmm. That's just how I take yeah, it when I, think, I first see I, it. I, I don't know. Um, I think they, they definitely, uh, I mean, we have to be honest. Hell is not a popular doctrine. No. Um, hasn't been for a, a long time. I mean, even people that we would respect, um, and like like I think yeah. about John Stott, who I don't know if he actually believed in it or if he was open to it. But, I mean, you read his commentaries, and they're really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, he, he's, Preaching the gospel, I mean, his book, Basic Christianity, or his book, The Cross of Christ, mm-hmm. great books. But then, um, again, I don't know if he actually embraced it or at least was open to the idea um, of this. And and you see that even in some uh, early church fathers. Uh, I think of at least one guy named Gregory of Nyssa, who is mm, one yeah. of the famous Cappadocian fathers, um, who had some kind of idea of universalism yeah. or something like that. And so... Uh, again, a major error. Can you be a Christian and go to heaven and not believe in hell? Yes, you can. But that there's a lot of things yeah. you cannot believe in yeah. and go to heaven because you're just trusting Christ. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make it still right, and it still mm-hmm. is a major error mm-hmm. and a major hole. And churches should not um, should should hold the line on the teaching yeah. that hell is an eternal state of punishment that's conscious. C.S. Lewis struggled with hell yes he did yeah i mean his book great the great divorce yeah I mean, there is definitely a universalistic kind of mm-hmm. pulling mm-hmm. if you will mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure um lastly real quick the revival of the gift of prophecy in the life of ellen g white is a uh, an issue whenever you're studying seventh day adventism and again i don't know it would be interesting. You'd have to probably talk to each individual seventh day adventist to see what role ellen white's prophetic quote, quote, prophetic role plays in their individual faith. I personally reject Ellen White's prophetic ministry simply because of that coffee statement <laughs> right away. Absolutely. That, that is, I mean, that to me uh, is, is a, uh, she just didn't like it. She just didn't I mean, just say it, Ellen. <laughs> um, <laughs> come on, Ellen. Come on the Ellen show. <laughs> come on, little grandma, Ellen. <laughs> we just have carbonated water the whole time. Um, so, yeah, here, let's see. What do I got here? Um, so this is from their statement, their fundamental belief number 18. They say this. The scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. So, on the one hand, she is a prophet. On the other hand, they're still saying the Bible is our standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so uh, walk through real quick a few points. They say prof- the prophetic gift is given to a person who, quote, receives messages or insight from God. So, again, that's a difference in understanding what prophecy. I don't think um, we would believe it's an inspired, infallible message that God gives to certain specific messengers um, in the Scripture, whether they be a prophets, prophets or apostles. Secondly, the prophetic gift is a sign of the remnant near the end of time. So I'm assuming they would think they are part of the remnant church. Um, they recognize her as a, as a prophet. Now, this is interesting. This is from their website, again, about the gift of prophecy. They say this, Her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. 
She also made clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Her role was to point people back to the Bible, never to replace it or supersede it. So they're saying as a prophet, she simply pointed people back to the Bible. She didn't claim that her stuff was scripture or or maybe was not the same standard as the Bible is. And then lastly, I, you read this, and again, this is from uh, their university, Andrews University. This is from that website. I stole a handout there, again, that they have available uh, online. Um, but it says, according to some Seventh-day Adventist members, Ellen White is not the last word on doctrine. Uh, this is a quote from this uh, document. The church's statement of 27 fundamental beliefs cites the scriptures, not Ellen White, for each of its beliefs. In the book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe, the church's beliefs are presented and explained in the context of the scriptures, not Ellen White. Neither Ellen White nor the church has ever taught that she was the last word on doctrine. So in some ways, it sounds like their understanding of prophecy is not so much infallibility, but it's closer to continuationism or charismatics mm-hmm. or Pentecostals, depending on who you're talking to. Um. It's inspired, but not so inspired that it's the scripture. But again, the question is, is when do you follow her? When do you not? Mm-hmm. What role does she actually play? And I guess you'd probably just have to talk to each individual Seventh-day Adventist again and figure out. The problem is, is whenever you add other standards, you start getting into messes like this. Um, and so the question is, what is her role, if uh, any, in what a, somebody should believe if you claim to be a Seventh-day Adventist? And this is why we... What, what, yeah, go ahead, Tim. You're, I'm just reading on their website because they've made some more statements about her recently, 2015. Yeah, go for it. <clears throat> In 2015, uh, they got together for their meeting, their yearly meetings, yeah. I imagine, that they had, and they it was something about her death. It was a bicentennial or centennial, on the centennial of her death. This is why they're doing this. They say, we commit ourselves to, the, to study the writings of Ellen G. White prayerfully, and with hearts willing to follow the counsels and instructions we find there. Whether individually, in the family, in small groups, in the classroom, or in the church, a combined study of the Bible and her writings provide a transforming and faith-uplifting experience. We encourage the continued development of both worldwide and local strategies to foster the circulation of her writings inside and outside the church. The study of these writings is a powerful means to strengthen and prepare his people for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would say that statement puts her writings in the Bible in the same plane. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you can deny <clears throat> that from that statement. I think again though, like it's it's hard because then they'll then they have other statements that 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 go against that. So I guess the question is, is she just like like an almost like an authoritative interpreter of it, the Bible? I'm, I'm just curious because I mean it seems I, like some of their statements about prophecy makes it sound like this could like this gift of prophecy that anybody well, get it. it also says we but reaffirm they, our conviction that her writings are divinely inspired. Yeah. What does that mean? Right. Again, I'm just I don't yeah, I just ahead. don't know why they're elevating Ellen White over any other prophet that comes out of their church. Right. Because their statements about the ongoing gift of prophecy sure make it seem like anybody could have this, but they've singled out one person. Right. And that's what makes right. me really nervous about that. They do have this I, this guy William Foy in their um, in their uh, chart here that I've got over here. Ellen G. White and William Foy, F O Y. But yeah, that's another good question. I mean, can other prophets come? Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible for other prophetic activity to happen? Um, who are those people, and how do you discern whether or not they're actually prophets? Um, I think this is this is why um, the Protestant Reformation, with the emphasis on Scripture is so important because um, this, this, this doesn't embracing her prophetic role as we're reading, we're even seeing different views about is it inspired to the level of scripture or is it not? You can see how complex it makes it for the individual believer to know where do I look to, to understand what I'm supposed to believe. It doesn't simplify matters. Um, it, it only further complicates them greatly um, and I don't know that that's the way the Lord wants us to receive his truth. Mm-hmm. He wants us to be able to trust him mm-hmm. and to look to the scriptures, to the word of God, 
and um, they're really plain. And, there, and there they is, don't forbid coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a danger, too, like you said, Scott, you know, like with this emphasis on Ellen White, you know, and I guess maybe people look at it from a traditional standpoint, like like the Christian Missionary Alliance. Yeah. A.B. Simpson was talked about all the time, and then A.W. Mm. Tozer came a second. Right. Closely behind him. And I, I remember just always struggling with that. Like, why? They, they talk so much about A.B. Simpson. Oh, A.B. Simpson said this and this and this, mm. and this is why we do what we do. It's like, wait a second. Mm. And so that, I think tradition gets kind of mixed together with yeah. all that as well, and, and people get confused, and you're like, hmm, Ellen White? Okay, yeah, I guess, you know, whatever. Right. The founding narrative yeah. takes on a life yes. of its own yeah. and continues. Yeah. And that goes, I mean, I get suspicious of any group that would quote a, a person. Right. More than they're actually looking at scripture itself. Exactly. For any tradition, ours, theirs, whoever's. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Definitely. Okay. Well, we've hit the one hour mark. I see that. Uh, um, But but the first, we had 10 minutes of football talk. Three, more like 15. No, it was 10. I love three to nothing, Scott. Three Three to nothing. Three to nothing. If you're right, if you're right, man, uh, (laughs) if you're right, I will buy you a $100 gift card for Skyline Chili. Whoa. Wow. Okay. It's not <laughs> You know the only the only level you could have gone below that is two nothing. It would actually it could have been the safety. And yeah, the, it would have been. It would actually would have. I mean, if you if you do that, I'd rather get just a hundred dollars of the cans because a gift card. I actually have to wait until we travel south to go. Okay, and we'll Alicia, buy a hundred dollars of Skyline Chili at Kroger. Let us stop there that often. That'll get you ten cans. <laughs> That's yeah, probably true. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope it's been helpful, um, and uh, uh, the conversation has been fruitful. And uh, hopefully, it helps us all think about what we believe and why we believe it as well. So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, take care, and God bless.